certainly. I'm trying to get my cat off the chest. The cat just jumped on my lap, ripped the earplugs out of my ears, and knocked my computer into my chair. <laughs> do, do we need to start over? <laughs> You're listening to the CXMH podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to CXMH. My name is Robert Vohr, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm excited for our guest today. I know we were chatting a little bit, um, and so I'm excited to to share with our audience uh, that today we are joined by Dr. Mary McDaniel Kale. She speaks and writes about informed compassion. Her op-eds and essays on dementia, caregiving, and grief have been featured in the LA Times, the Miami Herald, the Chicago Tribune, the Huffington Post. I mean, all sorts of places. She is the author of Alzheimer's, A Crash Course for Friends and Relatives, and a founder of the All Weather Friend. Uh, she's a graduate of the University of Virginia, living near Charlottesville, and she's the author of the new book, Dementia and the Church, Memory, Care, and Inclusion. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Is there anything else that our audience should know about you before we get to some questions? No, I think that's fine, and then you covered the things that are important to me. Well, just just to start with, I mean, can you give us a little bit of background about you and maybe why you felt called to write this book, right, Dementia in the Church? Give us some, you know, some background on that. Well, I've been writing about and working with people who have Alzheimer's and dementia for for a number of years, more more than a decade, and and actually, the the call to write the book came from the acquisitions editor at Fortress Press. She, um, Someone saw my website and read a few blogs, apparently, and, you know, and, and forwarded it to her. And she contacted me because she felt like I might be able to put to, the two pieces together of dementia and faith. She said they had had you know, some people that they considered, um, but it, w- it was a matter of being able to merge those two things, you know, those, those two, two parts of what they needed. And so you know, my call to write the book was, was really from her, I, you know, superficially anyway. I like to think <laughs> I was called by God yeah. to write it. But what really, I, I sat down after, you know, after we had, had talked and we did a Zoom, you know, a Zoom call and um, I wrote a proposal for it. And I really felt like, you know, this is good because it'll pull, it will, you know, I'll be able to pull these two things together within my own mind as well. And I felt, I feel like the church really has can have an amazing role, you mm. know, and and supporting and providing for and uh, basically alleviating the social isolation of, of people who are living with dementia. And there are so many. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, it's so, it's so good. I love just how natural it sounds like this book came to be, even with the acquisitions editor, you know, reaching out to you and um, just based on the good work that it sounds like you had already been doing prior to writing this book, 
I know we we talked um, a bit about dementia back on episode 142. So we had a couple of colleagues of mine at Baylor, uh, Dr. Dennis Myers and Dr. Brianna Garrison had come on to talk a little bit about dementia within the church. And so for our listeners, like, you know, it, it, please, if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely I want to nod back to that one, um, you know, especially if your heart is in this area. And I want to give us a little bit of a chance for those who may not have listened to that episode to, you know, unpack just, you know, what dementia is and, you know, what is some of the prevalence of it and, um, you know, why, you know, what is it that we're talking about here in the first place? Do you mind unpacking that for us, Mary? Sure. Well, dementia is is a symptom, you know, of many diseases and there there are you know, are, are basically four that are, are the most common, which Alzheimer's you know, is what we mostly think of when we think of dementia, but also vascular dementia, dementia with Lewy body, frontotemporal lobe dementia are probably the four most common types. And, um, but, but Alzheimer's by far and away the most common. And it's, it's a huge prevalence really in our country, you know, six million worldwide, about 55 million. When you think about that, you know, that's more people than are in the country of Spain, you know, so mm. there, 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 mm. there, are, there are so many people worldwide. And it's not just the people who have been diagnosed with it. I use the term living with dementia to describe not only people who've been diagnosed with it, but also caregivers. Um, a, a great many of these people that are, you know, that have dementia and are, and are you know, are, and are living with these, these conditions that cause it have family caregivers. And as the dementia gets, as the symptoms escalate, the caregiving really becomes, you know, very, very, can become very consuming. And so um, Um, dementia tends to be, for that reason, fairly isolating. It's isolating because, uh, you know, people, especially with Alzheimer's, are losing kind of basic skills and in kind of a, not kind of, in in a progressive way. And so things that we all take for granted, you know, as it gets into the moderate or middle stage, Alzheimer's, brushing your teeth, coming here, putting on your clothes, and opening a can of soup and making it for yourself, all of these things become things that you are going to need help with. Now, so the caregiver is basically in a situation where they are really, um, you know, their their life becomes about caregiving, if they're mm. if they're fully responsible. Well, and yeah. so, when you consider what a church can offer, it, it just sort of imagine yourself. You're 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 you know you're you're with a spouse or a parent or whatever who needs your help to do lots of things, most things. You know, and so how do you how do you go to the store? You know, sometimes how do you how do you have a social life? How do you, you know, take care of yourself? And so um, a church that is welcoming you in, you know, both you and your loved one can offer so many things, you know, so many, so many, there's so many different ways that a church can, can be supportive in that situation. And, yeah, um, you know, and, and the thing is, one point that I make in the book and that that was important to me to really kind of say over and over again, it's not just about, you know, the church providing for people who, ha- who are living with dementia, 
but understanding that there's a great deal for them. There's a great deal for you as as ministers and as parishioners and, you know, and welcoming in people who are living with dementia. Yeah. I don't know if that answered well, your question. Yeah. 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 And it actually great. answered the next question as well, right? Which I always, we always chuckle kind of when, when guests get ahead of us or just naturally flow into the next question, right? Because um, I was, I was going to ask, you know, why, why is it important for churches to think about how to, how to care for folks with living with dementia or their care, their caregivers? Well, this is the reason it's important. Um, besides what I just said, it's important because churches, more than any other organization that I can think of, have um, resources right at their fingertips. They have oftentimes a large space, not maybe necessarily the sanctuary, but their fellowship halls and Sunday school rooms and things that are really not in, you know, in continual use, sometimes not in use much at all during the week. So there's a space. And also churches have a body of people, you know, who are called to help people who need it. And so there's, you know, there's the, you know, the, the church's mission in general, you know, it, it, it is is to help, and you know, and to be there for people who well, are who are finding it hard, you know, to live for for whatever reason, um, or to live very comfortably and you know and you know without quite so many problems. And also, the church has, you know, dementia is very, as I said, very socially isolating, and so the church has. Um, you know, this structure where where there are people who are, you know, congregate there in a regular way. And when you think about how we form friendships in this world of ours where we're all so busy, oftentimes it's it's where we where we come in contact with people, our work, you know, our yeah, our gym, our, you know, we're wifing groups or whatever. But when those if those things get pulled away from us for one reason or other, we quit that job or whatever. You know, that group of friends tends to sort of peter off and trickle away, too. We always have our inner circle of friends that we hope stay with us. But the church provides a social, you know, a welcoming social group that's there all the time. You know, it's not going to disappear. It's not going to, it's not going to be, it's not going to be cut out of your life for some reason. So, mm. um, you know, they, it offers a place mm. to, to, to worship, a place to socialize a place that can respond to emotional needs. In the book, I talk about how to how to how to counsel people who are uh-huh. living with dementia, and also a church responds to practical needs. We have you know churches that offer soup kitchens and things like that. Well, you know people who are living with dementia need oftentimes help. You know that kind of help, like you know I have some different ways yeah. that the church can reach out and and um. And just help with impractical ways. I'll, I'll just tell you a very quick story. I was um, sitting with a, a woman in her kitchen one time, and she she was an, a, an older, she probably in her late seventies, and she was just almost. She was just very fragile, just almost bird like, and she was taking care of her husband. And when we would get together, you know, I'd come and talk to her, and we get together, and she would usually be really kind of upbeat, almost for my benefit. But this day, she looked out, and she just put her hands, her face in her hands, and she started to cry. And she said, why can't somebody just cut the grass for me? Even just one time, why can't somebody see all of this and just come over and cut the grass? Yeah. You know, and, and I, I don't think, 
in all the time, in all the in all the times that I've talked to people, there is I've ever talked to anybody, no matter what their social, you know, their financial situation was, who wouldn't have appreciated, you know, at times some help, dinner yeah. brought over, yeah, you know, whatever. And so the church, really, um, you know, in multiple ways, is very well suited to make a huge difference here, not a small difference, a huge difference. Yeah, I love that. So there's a there's a phrase that you use actually it was even in the bio there that I wanted to highlight because I think it, it kind of sets the stage for basically the whole conversation around how an individual or a community or you know whatever group can can go about caring for people who are navigating things even if if we don't have personal experience in them right so can you talk about the 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 idea of informed compassion and what you mean by that yes I will back up just a little bit in my life um, to my late 30s, and I, I was, I went through a very hard time um, for a number of years. And just to mention a few things, I, um, I was, my husband and I, my late husband and I were were dealing with infertility. I, it was very hard. I miscarried. I he had a very rare type of a brain tumor. We had to travel across the country for this terrible surgery that happened it just and then a few months after that he took his own life he was a physician um oh and gosh you can imagine i found him no i i oh um, and so that's saying in a nutshell something that is just was so shattering and so complex um that i i don't know i mean there's just what I can say is that I felt absolutely not just shattered, but just marginalized in the sense that I felt like nobody gets this. I mean, they didn't mm. understand when I was going through infertility. All my friends were having babies without any trouble, you know, and I, I, that in itself, you know, was enough to give me this idea. But my husband's brain too were in suicide on top of it, certainly. Um, to make it seem, you know, incredibly, I don't know, huge in my mind that really Good. people, people, especially our friends, I think really want to be supportive of you when you're going through a hard time. But yeah. the reality is Good. that even though we can feel compassion, you know, don't we all feel compassion when a friend is suffering? But that compassion doesn't necessarily enable you to have a real even in broad, broad brushstroke sense of what they're going through. Well, and so sometimes, yeah. you know, when you're confronted with that kind of, oh my gosh, I, yeah, they feel terrible. I feel terrible for them. And, um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I wish I knew what to say. Well, yeah. on the, on the, on the other side of that, I wish you knew what to say too, because it's so hard mm. you know, when you're yeah. going through this. To, to try to explain yourself over and over again. You feel like this person who's trying to make people pity you, and that's not it. You just need so badly to have somebody, you know, understand and be able to step in, you know, with that understanding. And so what I came up with was mm. two things. You know, one was the idea of informed compassion, where this is where your friend sees you, sees me, you know, as a person who's, say, going through infertility, and says, I'm going to go learn about that from somewhere else. Yeah. I'll do just a bit of reading. I'll, I'll educate myself a little bit. So then when I you know, when I call Mary, I won't say things like, 
well, you can have one of my kids anytime you want. Not much. You know, uh, um, or they won't ask detailed questions about a suicide that you're not able, really willing, not so much able, but willing to answer. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and it's the same with anything with dementia. Um, oftentimes when people, you know, are, are confronted by that, their feeling is, number one, fear. You know, if they're a late middle age, you know, or, 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 or getting a little older, a lot of times it's a sense of, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm scared of that within myself. So you have, you have that component. It's not just misunderstanding, it's fear. But there's yeah. also a sense of awkwardness, like, well, I don't, you know, if their brain is changing, how, how do, how do, they're not going to be the same person, right? You know, where it's going to, it's going to be somebody very, you know, they're, mm. it's going to be different. And I, I feel awkward about that. And I've had so many people in early Alzheimer's say to me, as soon as my friends found out I had dementia or had Alzheimer's, they started treating me differently. Oh. And, you know, one thing that, you know, that finding out about it would enable you to do is say to yourself, you know what, the early stage of, of Alzheimer's disease often goes on and on. And yes, there, once it becomes symptomatic, that's by definition symptomatic is, you know, I, I can see how this is changing this person. The symptoms initially are things like, or, you know, sh loss of short-term memory or, you know, trouble with spatial relationships, you know, where, knowing where you are, following directions. Um, but but that, that doesn't really change your relationship that much. So you don't suddenly mm. have to stop talking to somebody, you yeah. know, or imagine that you, you, you know, can't talk about complex things anymore. Ugh. You know, and so I guess... I guess really, you know, that if you learn about it and enables you as this as as this dementia progresses to sort of make adjustments yourself because this person, you know, who is dealing with clinical changes in their brain can't make the changes. You know, you have to be the one to go along and be present with them where they are. But that doesn't mean pull out and say, well, you know, we I can't have a relationship with you anymore. No, it means I'm gonna learn how to make have the best relationship I can have to make the most of my relationship with yeah. as time goes on. Yeah. I love that because it, it requires both sides, right? Learning some, right? Becoming informed and, and so that you have some sense of, you know, the lay of the land and also the compassion side, right? You can't just learn about a thing but not really care. I mean, that doesn't, you know, so like having both sides of that seems like yeah. it's a, the way well, to, to respond. Well, hopefully, yes. I mean, I, mean, I think it, it really kind of empowers you as a friend, you know, and, and you never know, honestly, I can tell you, having been through what I've been through, that that some of the things that I'm sure people said to me and, and did for me and how they've completely forgotten those things, but I remember them, you know, because they were, they, they yeah. just showed, you know, they just showed, wow, this person really gets it. Yeah. And I, 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 I needed that so badly. You know, at one point, I just needed people once in a while to sort of step in and show me that not only did they care, but they could see something of what I was going through. Yeah. So, you know, so, and, and with dementia, I just want to say this, I want to make this point. As it goes on, and, you know, and, and especially with Alzheimer's, let's say, you know, the hippocampus is completely, you know, degraded and you don't have any, any real ability to remember much of anything anymore. Um, you know, you might, as a friend, say to yourself, well, they're not going to remember anyway, are they? Because if I go see them and I spend this time with them, then, well, you know, what good is that? Because they'll forget imme immediately. But what you need to understand is that, yes, 
they might forget what you talked about and what you did, but that happiness that you brought to them during that visit, that linger, yeah. and that will make a difference to the caregiver, you know, and to and to just the and and to just this this person for whom life yeah. is such a struggle, you know, for their, I don't know, imagine it bringing joy. I mean, how valuable yeah. is that? Whether yeah. you remember the the actual, you know, underpinnings of it or not, it does those feelings do linger. Yeah. Hey. So one one thing I I do want to say and highlight and and um, just commend you on is is that this book is incredibly tangible and helpful, right? I mean, you walk specifically through a couple different chunks, right? Indiv- the individual pastoral counseling aspect that you alluded to a little bit ago, educating your community, right? Preparing leaders and volunteers for a, a memory ministry, uh, down to having like specific activities. There's even there's like a, a pre-written survey that you could use to gauge your congregation's understanding of dementia in there, right? So, I mean, it's just very tangibly helpful, which I just wanted to highlight because I think it, it's easy to listen to an episode of, of a podcast on about this and go, yes, the church definitely should be doing something. And then, you know, as you go back to the, the day-to-day of ministry, obviously there's lots of other things that also require your attention. So, you know, just to to highlight that, that looking at it, not working in ministry, but, but having looked through the book, I, I can imagine it being very helpful to somebody who, you know, would say, okay, well, starting something like this could be overwhelming, right? Well, I, I really appreciate your, your saying that because really, and, and that kind of goes back to my, my long ago background as an educator when I did program development, is that when you're in a situation that's very demanding and any minister is, you know, honestly, I wanted, I wanted to, to write a book that a minister could take and read and not have to spend, you know, ages and ages reading, but just could pretty easily read. And when they got to the end of it, they would have a really no, you know, okay, this is how uh-huh. we start a minute a memory ministry. And I don't have to invent all this stuff. You know, I even, you know, yeah. have written some announcements and things, you know, so that you don't <laughs> even have to do that. Um, and just, yeah. you know, if, if you're a minister and you're trying to start a memory ministry, one of the problems may be, or one of the you know, challenges may be that Maybe you don't have somebody in your family who has dementia. Maybe you just really only know about it from what you've heard, you know, on TV or maybe read in articles. And and so I wanted to make the book say that, okay, this is what you need to know in order to teach this. This is how you teach it. These are the activities you use. These are the resources you can pull together, you know, to talk about. Um, So that basically, you know, I wanted to, to give churches a book that it, it doesn't matter whether you're the First Baptist Church of Atlanta or you're a little church somewhere in the middle of nowhere. When you finish mm. this book, you can figure out how to have a memory ministry that fits what your church can do and what your community may need. Yeah. And um, that you can do it in a way that's that's not going to cost the church an arm and a leg. You know, it's not like yeah. starting you know, something where there's going to be a big outlay mm-hmm. of money. It's mainly just education and effort. Yeah. Well, to to that effect, right? I mean, I I figured that that if we go not quite step by step, but I mean, if if I said, okay, do you have a couple, you know, one or two ideas that you would say to somebody on the the pastoral counseling aspect, and then what about educating your congregation or you know actually starting the memory ministry? Do, like, if I just kind of throw those at you, would you be willing to offer kind of one or two thoughts or ideas for each of those? Sure. It can be broad or specific. 
Okay. Um, as far as the counseling, the pastoral counseling chapter, I actually, my, my background is in counseling, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with a lot of different approaches to it. But what I did was I came up with a model, you know, of pastoral counseling that I think would work with, you know, not just for caregivers, but people with, with memory loss. And, and it has you know, for, for components. And for example, the first one, the first one is, is how you initiate counseling. And, and, and these are ways actually this, what the model points out is how this type of counseling may be different, you know, from the counseling you're going to do with somebody who's going through a divorce, say, or, you know, or, or, or any other sort of loss. And, and one of the, the first component, you know, the initiation of counseling is different because, People who are living with dementia, whether they're whether they whether they you know have the condition or whether they're the caregiver, often um, are not going to initiate counseling. It's not that they don't want it. It's not that they wouldn't very much benefit from it. But it's that sometimes, you know, with Alzheimer's, lack of initiative is one of the initial symptoms. So even though you may feel like you want somebody to talk to, the actual act of stepping into you know knocking on somebody's door and saying I need help. It's not going to come naturally to you when you're in the throes of, you know, of Alzheimer's at the initial stages of Alzheimer's. When you're a caregiver, mm. you, you know, you may, you know, be really too busy to ask for help even though you need it. And so I I use the analogy, there's a, a biblical passage, and I, I wish I could tell you off the top of my head where in the Bible it is, but I can't. But it's the persistent <laughs> widow. You know, the persistent widow where we always, you know, the, the, the widow that is, is, is appealing to, you know, this, this judge and, you know, she comes and she asks for help, you know, and she, and he says, oh, and she comes and she asks and for help. And this goes on and on and on. Finally, the judge stands and goes, okay, all right, since you're being so persistent, you know, here's what you wanted. But I sort of, I flipped that around and said, you know, you, the minister need to be the persistent widow here when you are looking out and you see somebody in your congregation struggling and sometimes you will you know as a, as a minister you're standing in the pulpit and you can see you know if somebody is having trouble with i you know a, a person who's not able to sit still or you know or you or you know for example of you know gosh i know that her husband has alzheimer's i know that his you know his, his her parent lives with her and you know her mother lives with her and her mother has alzheimer's that rather than wait and say oh well they'll come to me you know, if they need help, that you would, would go up to them and just say, you know, I have a little bit of time. I don't have, you know, ministers mm. don't have a lot of time, and I do acknowledge that, but I have some time, you know, if you want to sit down and have a cup of coffee one day, or maybe I could drop by, or, mm. you know, that that basically for whatever, let's say you've got three hours a week for counseling, if you're a ministry, you might not even have that much, but out of that little bit of time that you have, of that little bit of time that you have, maybe you open some of that time and you do the approaching. Yeah, mm. that's good. So, so there's that. The other, well, you know, the other elements of it are are compassionate listening, and and I have got a long story associated with that, kind of from my own life, and um, witness the witness of grief. You know, a lot of times when yeah. people begin to cry or they are, you know, they're overwhelmed or we, we sense that they're losing control in some way, emotional control, we're immediately just shoving a box of tissues at them, you know, patting them on the back and saying, you know, shaking them a little shake and saying, it's, it's okay, you know, 
It's all yeah. going to be, you know, we have this need to, to sort of sort of contain it. And, mm. and instead, what I'm saying is, no, no, you know, you, the minister, if there's a place on earth where you should be able to come and bring who you are and what you're feeling, you know, it's to your minister. And yeah. so the, mm. that acceptance of the expression of grief. And then also a way that, you know, that it is with prayer, you know, and I have this, I have what I think is just a very wonderful story of prayer that I found, believe it or not, in the middle of a professional journal, you know, that I had looked up because I wanted to see this particular article. I went over to the, the University of Virginia Library and had them find it in some way. And, and I was so glad I did because it was a story of a woman and her husband who had dementia and the prayer that they would pray every day. And I feel like sometimes, you know, I guess we, we, I don't know, don't put counseling and prayer together, certainly not secular counseling, but how very important and necessary that is, you yes. know, for people yes. who are struggling and how we look at prayer, you know, how we, how, how we, we approach prayer with people who are living with dementia. So that's. I, I'm sorry, I sort of went on and on about that one chapter. No, but. no, I think I think it's great. And I love the stories that you wove into it, too. I think it's a great way to introduce your work um, to our listeners in the hope that, you know, they will, you know, take this and, and hopefully go check out your book and um, and go learn from the good work that you're doing, Mary. I do. One of the questions that we love to ask our guests is, you know, we recognize that you have done so much work in this area and that you are so passionate about it. And so I'm curious, what is your hope for this work that you're doing or your hope for this book? Gosh, I hope I absolutely nothing. I can't think of anything that would make me feel more joyful than to know that that churches did memory ministries and they invited people in and it made a difference. You know, yeah. that, 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 that it just, it wasn't just something that, you know, you just sort of say, oh, well, you know, I, I, you know, I don't really know how to do this and it seems like too much to take on or whatever. I tried very, very hard to make the point in the book, no, it's not too much for you to do. You can do any one small little part of this and make a difference. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to start a respite care program that invites in the whole community for lunch. Yeah. You can do that if you want to, and certainly there's some good, a very good model out there. Um, Daphne Johnston in, in Mobile, Alabama, or Montgomery, Alabama, first United Methodist Church has 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 that yeah. you know put pulled all together for you. But you don't have to do that. You know, you can do. You know, do you have a Wednesday evening supper that you do regularly? Is there a caregiver and a person, are there people, is there a family that's living with dementia out in your community? And could somebody put together dinner on Wednesday and carry it over to them? And this yeah. is our min this uh. is our memory ministry. You know, the idea is just, you know, in the same way of counseling with somebody sits in front of you and you're getting ready to work with them, you start with where they are. Yeah. You know, fun. you don't sit there and decide, oh, I want to accomplish these certain goals. No, you sit there and look at what's in front of you. You know, the person sitting in front of you and you start with exactly where they are. It may yeah. be that they can't even open their mouth and say a word. You yeah. Know, well, then you sit in silence. Yeah. And, you know, in the same way with a church, you know, when you consider taking this on, 
you know, don't say, oh my gosh, you know, this is going to be so huge. Say, wow, you know, I can, I can read this and I can figure out something that we could do. Maybe it's just educating one Sunday school group in your church about what, you know, how to reach out to people with dementia in the community or in their own families. Yeah. You know, maybe it's just, maybe it's, you know, having a support group for caregivers on Tuesday nights twice a month. You know, I'm, I'm not, it's, it, it can be, and it can be something that you build on. And, and I go through the process of that, like how you, how as a church, you look at what you have, you know, and you decide, you look at your, you look at what resources you have, you look at your building, you look at your community and you say, okay, you know, what is one small thing that we can start with based on what we have? Yeah. I love that. And there's, like I said, there's lots of really tangible things in there using name tags or, you know. Um, so I definitely, if if someone is listening and they they say, oh, I think I could do some of this, like I would I would definitely recommend going in and grabbing a copy. And there's lots of you know, like you said, step by step and and things written out and and all sorts of things. Listeners, if you want to connect with Dr. Mary McDaniel Kale, you can do that on her website allweatherfriend.org or on Instagram or Facebook at allweatherfriend. You can buy Dementia in the Church, Memory, Care, and Inclusion, wherever you buy your books. You can, uh, just to save time, you can see all the ways to connect with the show, with Holly, or with me in the show notes. I won't necessarily go through all those, but all those links are in there, and I feel like people know them by now. Mary, thank you so much for joining yeah, us today. Do you, you have maybe one one closing thought for our listeners? I would say, and this, is, this was, was actually something I closed the book with, is that you know, when the Bible talks about yeast, how a tiny little bit of yeast will make a whole loaf of bread rise. And so when you think of what you can do, think about that, you know, about what you start small with. You don't know where it'll go or how big it might get in terms of somebody's quality of life or the needs of your community. It's just, you know, that's that's what faith is. It's, it's, it's doing, you know, what God has enabled you to do. And just expecting that the rising of it, and it was in God's hands. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.